Good morning. Hi. I'm really happy to be here with you today. So in the last part of June and the first part of July, my family and I had the opportunity to travel for a sabbatical. And I just want to say to start off here that we are deeply grateful to the elders of this church and to this body to give us the opportunity to do that. A lot of pastors burn out doing ministry stuff, and so we're just really grateful uh, for, this, for this body. And so we had a great time as a family. We traveled to the southern part of Florida. Here's some fancy pictures. We spent some time at the beach doing beach things, and then we traveled to the Great Smoky Mountains. Has anyone ever been to the Smoky Mountains? Beautiful. It's like the Ozarks on steroids, and we did waterfall hikes, and we just had an incredible time as a family. It was wonderful. My selfie game's pretty strong there. You guys see that? It's pretty good. Uh, uh, several months back, you may remember this if you've been here, I shared with you that I, that I received one of those mass marketing emails from Ancestry.com. Anyone ever gotten one of those things? And, and I got that email, and it came in, and for whatever reason, they got me this time. They got, I signed up for this 30-day free trial of Ancestry.com. I signed in, started putting in my information, and before I knew it, I, I, I was tracking down my family history, corroborating it with my parents and grandparents, back to the fifth, sixth, seventh generation back. And so here's, here's my family tree, too small for you to see, but going all the way back to the, the mid to late 16, early 1700s. It was amazing. Well, as it turns out, during that time, I discovered that my fifth great-grandparents, James and Hannah Wilson, lived and were buried in Tennessee, not too far from where we were staying. And so we, on our way home, decided we're going to go on a little adventure in the boondocks of Tennessee, and we're going to find this cemetery where they're supposedly buried. And so we drove through the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. We were on back roads, like the population was cows. And, uh, and, and we finally got to this little farming, this little rural community called Fountain Grove. And we pulled up to this little cemetery where we found this little insignificant tombstone that was faded with time. And all it said was Wilson. It just said Wilson. It was a pretty amazing experience. Now, there's nothing quite like visiting a graveyard that will make you reflect on the brevity of life, right? If you need a perspective shift, go to a graveyard and look for somebody who has your name. It'll start to make you feel real small. It'll start to make you realize how short life is. We are here for just a moment, and then we're, we are gone the next. And as I stood there over the little, tiny, insignificant tombstone of my fifth great-grandparents... Uh, all I could think of was, this is all that's left of them. This. This tiny tombstone. All their possessions are gone. Nobody, nobody has their stuff anymore. All, anybody who has any memory of who they were, guess where they are? Gone. Faded. Disappeared. And as I sat in front of that insignificant tombstone in that small cemetery in the middle of nowhere, I just felt the weight of my life. I felt the weight of how I'm spending my time. You ever had one of those moments? And the question that hovered over me in that moment was, was, what am I living for? What am I giving my life to? 
What am I investing in? Because there's this principle that we see scattered all over the Bible about eternal investment, storing up treasures in heaven, investing in things that will last beyond you. And I hate to be the one to break this to you. This is kind of a depressing way to start the service. We are all going to die. (laughs) We have a terminal illness. It's called humanity. We are all going to die. Every single one of us in this room will end up at some point just like James and Hannah. And so the question that hangs over us as we gather together here this morning is, what are we going to live for? What are we going to give our lives to? Because just like that tombstone Many of the things that we invest in will fade away. There's this quote from this famous missionary named C.T. Studd, one of the all-time best missionary names, C.T. Studd. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. A little bit of a rhyme, but helpful to orient ourselves to think about what we're talking about today. And so in our text today, we're going to see Jesus investing in things that matter, devoting his life to things that will last, and he's calling us to do the same thing. That's the talk. Please bow your heads and pray with me here this morning. Our Father, we come to you together as the body of Christ, those of us who've gathered together in Jesus' name from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of places, and we come together this morning to worship the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would be stirred up like when Stephen stood up and he was preaching, almost ready to be martyred. You, it shows you standing at the edge of your seat. Would you stand at the edge of your seat in anticipation for what you want to do in this church, in this community, in our own lives even, God? And Lord, I, I just feel like you've been speaking to me recently. Stop playing games. It's time to stop playing games. And it's time to live for things that matter. I pray that you would remind us of that eternal truth here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open those things up to Matthew chapter 9, the very end of the chapter, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. This is our text for today. And as you're turning there, let me remind you where we've been. We have been studying the gospel of Matthew. Actually, since last December, we've been in Matthew. We're going expositionally, verse by verse, through this book because we want to look at what God's word says in this very important gospel about who Jesus is. And, and, and we've, we've, the past few weeks, we've been in Matthew 8 and 9. And the theme of these two chapters, the theme that's kind of carried these two chapters is the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the authority. And this is really a theme that Matthew has been setting up for this whole book. Back in Matthew 4.23, we see a near identical passage to the one that we're going to be reading today. And that passage serves as kind of a bookend. It begins this series trying to, to show us who Jesus is. That verse, uh, Matthew 4.23, sets up what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And from there, we see that Jesus is authoritative in word. Jesus came as a different kind of teacher. Jesus came and he taught different than the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one with authority, not coming to abolish the law, 
but to fulfill it. So he is authoritative in word. And then as Matthew 7 ends and we begin Matthew 8, we start seeing these miracle stories over and over and over again. Sean talked about this last week, and it leads all the way to our text today, which is the other bookend. Ending this segment from Matthew 4.23 all the way to our text today, the whole segment is about Jesus' authority. Jesus is the authority. And Matthew 8 9 has shown us that Jesus is authoritative in his work. Not only is he teaching things that nobody's ever taught, but he has the power to back them up. Now, in, in these chapters, we've seen Jesus heal sick people. We've seen Jesus calm storms, cast out demons, raise a little girl from the dead, forgive sin. And all of this is showing us that he has authority over sickness and nature and demons and death and ultimately sin. Jesus is the authority. He's the long-awaited Messiah we've been waiting for. And so we should respond to his authority with obedience. We should follow him with our very lives. That's where we've been. Our text today, Matthew 9, 35. Let me read this for you. Here's the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as we look at this passage, as we examine this passage, we see Jesus devoting his life to a few things. I want to talk about those things because I think we should devote our lives to the same things. Let's look at the first thing. Jesus is devoting himself to the kingdom of God. If you're a note taker, this is a great time to take notes. The kingdom of God. Of God. Verse 35 is that passage that's identical with Matthew 4.23. Go look it up if you want to. And in both of those passages, we see that Jesus is concerned with sharing the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is sharing the good news of the kingdom. Both passages tell us that he taught about the kingdom. He preached or proclaimed the kingdom, and he healed people, thereby credentialing the kingdom. His healings showed people that what he was teaching was real and true and good. These were the primary works of Jesus on earth, teaching, preaching, healing. I think those should be the primary works that we have on earth as well. We should teach, we should proclaim, and our lives should lead to healing in other people. We should, we should be inviting people into wholeness with our lives. And Jesus did all of those things in order to share what is called the good news. That phrase, good news, can also be translated as what? Gospel. Gospel. It's it's this Greek word, evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelize. when, When you evangelize, you are very simply sharing good news. Christians hijacked this word in the first century. People used to evangelize about all kinds of things, but now they're evangelizing about the good news, right? We can evangelize about our favorite sports teams. The Razorbacks are currently ranked 17th in the 2019 recruiting class. That's good news for hog fans. It's still far away. 
We're still fifth in our division, though, so that's still kind of bad news. And so, so, but you can evangelize about it. You can evangelize about the latest restaurant concept in Bentonville, the holler. You walk in, and there's coffee, and there's shuffleboard, and there's tables everywhere, and you can hang out all day. Our church staff did a meeting there last week, and literally there were, there were church, six different church staffs at this. It was like heaven. All the Christians came together in this place. You can evangelize about anything. Evangelism is simply sharing the good news. But Jesus wasn't just sharing the good news about anything, was he? What was he sharing the good news about? The kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. And so what is the kingdom of God? Well, broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is God's eternal, God's sovereign, God's majestic rule over all of the universe and over all human history. Psalm twenty two twenty eight says, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Or Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules. He has dominion. He is sovereign over all. This means God is the ultimate authority in the universe. There is no divine struggle between good and evil. Let me repeat that. There is no divine struggle between good and evil as if this were some, some uh, glorified tug-of-war match that evil could in some way subvert him. God is sovereign. For, him, for his kingdom to rule over the nations means no one can stop him. He does whatever he pleases. Any authority that exists on this earth has either been established by God, see Romans 13, or has to ask God for permission before they can do anything, see Job chapter 1. And so we have a God of ultimate authority. That's the broad definition of the kingdom. Let's go, let's go more narrow. What is the narrow definition of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's spiritual rule and his reign in the hearts and lives of the people who willingly submit to him. God rules over those who give themselves over to him. There's, there's a theologian named George Eldon Ladd who wrote the book on this subject. Here, here's his definition of the kingdom of God. Bear with me, it's a long quote, but I think it's powerful. He says this, The kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, his authority. When this is once realized, we can go through the New Testament and find passage after passage where this meaning is evident, where the kingdom is not a realm or a people, but God's reign. Jesus said that we must receive the kingdom of God as a little child, Mark 10, 15. What is received? Do we receive the church? Do we receive heaven? What is received is God's rule. In order to enter the future realm of the kingdom, one must submit himself in perfect trust to God's rule here and now. We must also seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. What is the object of our quest? Is it the church? Is it heaven? No. We are to seek God's righteousness, his sway, his rule, his reign in our lives. Put more simply, the kingdom of God is anywhere God is king, anywhere God is ruling and reigning in People. Those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit to him are not a part of the kingdom of God. 
to deny God's authority is to not be a part of his kingdom. And all throughout the New Testament, in Hebrews in particular, it says, all you can expect is a fearful expectation of judgment. But the good news, the gospel, the evangelion, is that Jesus in this, he's traveling around and he's telling all of these people the good news of the kingdom. And, and what he's trying to communicate is, because I have come, heaven has broken through into earth. Heaven has broken, God is on this rescue mission to overthrow occupying enemies and set prisoners free. That is what he's, sin broke our ability to connect to God, to get to God, and so God said, I'm going to come to you. I'm coming down. That's why at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4, 17, he said, the kingdom of heaven, it's here. The kingdom is here. Now, heaven is breaking through. Every time we see Jesus heal someone, every time we see Jesus cast out a demon, every time we see Jesus work in a miraculous way, it's the kingdom of God breaking through into our reality. God stepping into our brokenness to restore it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now we need to acknowledge that, that in the earthly ministry of Jesus, was, was the world fully restored at that point? Was the world fixed? No, this was just the beachhead. This was, what, this was the beginning. This was the, this was the moment where it started. But one day, there is a future expectation of the kingdom that we are still waiting on. A future and complete restoration when all sickness and death and sin and evil will be undone. Revelation 21.4, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things have passed away and the new things have come. One day, heaven will come to earth and he will, he will flip this whole thing upside down on top of itself and restore every broken thing, bringing it back to him. That is the kingdom of God. There is this already aspect that the kingdom has begun and then there's this not yet aspect. The kingdom is coming. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, do you remember what he tells us to pray? He says, so pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every believer, every follower of Christ, that should be our cry. Lord, bring your kingdom to this earth. Bring your king, continue to restore brokenness in supernatural ways. And then in really normal ways, bring your kingdom to this earth. And so the question then, then for us, two really simple questions. Number one is, have you received the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that God is restoring all things? Have you received the, the only way for the brokenness of your life to be flipped upside down, the only way for you to get out of that space is to receive the kingdom in your life, to submit to his rule and reign and to trust in the person of Jesus Christ? And the next question, I think is a really important one too, is with whom are you sharing the good news of the kingdom? Are you sharing this? The, the, by the very definition of the word, like we talk about good news. We talk about the things that we're excited about. With whom are you sharing the good news? Use Jesus' format, teaching, preaching, healing. Who are you teaching the good news of the kingdom? Who are you preaching or proclaiming the message of the gospel to? Someone you work with, your kids, a family member? 
And then how are you participating in the healing and restoration and bringing wholeness to our world? We should care about the kingdom. We should devote our lives to the kingdom. Not my kingdom, his kingdom. Not building my own castle, building his kingdom. That's what we should invest our lives in. That will last. That's the first thing. Next thing. Next thing we see Jesus devoted to in this passage. Number two, compassion for the lost. Compassion for the lost. When he saw the crowds, it tells us he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that word compassion, it's a strong word. I like this word. In fact, it's one of the strongest words in the Greek language to communicate the idea of mercy or pity. It's this word. It's kind of fun to say, splanknizomai. Splanknizomai, right? Gesundheit, okay? And so, which literally means, it literally means to be affected deeply in one's inner being. The word splank, it, it means your gut. It means to be affected in your bowels, in your gut. And so to have compassion means you feel it in this visceral gut level way. You feel it moves you to the core of your being. Jesus looked out on the crowds and he felt it in his gut, compassion. When is the last time you felt that toward another human being? Gut level, visceral, burning, thinking about the terrible things that are happening, and some, the lostness, the brokenness. That is what Jesus Felt. And, and, and the beautiful thing about this, in the New Testament, this word is almost exclusively used of Jesus. Jesus had compassion on the sick, and so he healed them. Matthew 14. Jesus had compassion on the hungry, and so he fed them. And then in this passage in Matthew 9, Jesus has compassion on this lost, bewildered crowd. And we'll see what he does here in just a second. But this is not just a New Testament idea. Exodus 34, we also see God choosing to reveal him at himself as compassion. I think this is significant because sometimes we think, well, in the New Testament, God is really kind, and in the Old Testament, he's really mean. And so we've got to reconcile those two things, right? And so Moses is with the people of Israel. It's at the end of Exodus. God intends to show himself to the people to reveal his personal name, the personal pronoun that he chooses to describe himself, and then characteristics that he lists about himself. And wouldn't you know it, he describes himself as a compassionate God. Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. In that moment, he could have chosen any adjective to describe himself. He could have said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the just. Yahweh, Yahweh, the powerful. Yahweh, Yahweh, the mighty. But what did he say? Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's where he starts. That's where he begins. It's amazing. This loving, compassionate God. That, that, that passage in Exodus 34, it's repeated six or seven times in the Old Testament. Some scholars call it, it's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. 
Just repeat this idea. Oh, God is gracious and compassionate. Gracious and compassionate. When you begin to doubt God's character, remember that he first chose to reveal himself in a personal way to the people of God as a God of compassion. Feeling it in his gut for the brokenness and the lostness of people. And you can almost picture Jesus looking out over these crowds of people and experiencing that. He looks out and he sees this hopelessness, this lostness, and it just breaks his heart. He starts to melt. William Barclay, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, describes those words, the, the, the harassed and helpless. He says, when, when you read those words, you should get this sense, a sense of a corpse which is flayed and mangled, someone who is robbed through extortion, someone who is pestered by those without pity or treated with wanton insolence, someone who is utterly wearied by a journey which seems to know no end. It's like I just keep running on the treadmill and I can't get anywhere. Helpless, lost, like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus looks out on their desperation and he feels compassion in his gut. That's the God that we were talking about here this morning. And compassion is, is, is fundamentally choosing to suffer with someone. To have compassion means I'm going to step into their pain. I'm going to identify with some pain in myself because of that. And I'm going to suffer with that person. And Jesus did this over and over and over again. The whole incarnation, stepping into humanity, is Jesus doing this. But sometimes we, we don't do that, do we? We, we, we get what I like to call compassion fatigue. You ever heard that term? They say medical professionals are, are ones who are, are, are some of the most at risk for compassion fatigue. And here's what compassion fatigue is. It's indifference or desensitization to the suffering, or I would add, to the lostness of others due to the frequency of occurrence, due to being around so much pain, we become, this, we, we become indifferent to it. We become fatigued by it. I am guilty of this. I am guilty of feeling the weight of so much brokenness and in my flesh trying to fix it all. You ever do that? You ever try to carry the weight of the world on your shoulder? You can't do it, by the way. It'll crush you. And so we become fatigued by the pain of the world. But guess what? Jesus never grows fatigued in compassion. He's always compassionate. He's always loving. He always feels it in his gut for us. And he will empower that same feeling for you if you have struggled to have compassion for other people. Jesus never gets compassion fatigue. And we as a community of faith, we need to let his compassion, let the love of Christ compel us. If you are involved in some kind of service or ministry that is not rooted in the love, the heart, the compassion of God, you will burn out. You'll burn out. But you need to get a sense of the deep, caring, visceral, gut-level love of God. That's what will empower ministry. And so, simple question for us to think about. Are we compelled by the compassion of Jesus? Do we see and feel and respond to the needs of people around us? You'll notice that Jesus' compassion was never just an emotion. Like, oh, I, I'm so, I feel so bad for those people. His compassion always led to tangible action. So do you respond to the needs of people when you see them? 
When is the last time you felt compassion toward another human being? Here's, here's a convicting one. When is the last time you showed compassion to someone who fundamentally disagrees with your worldview? By the way, that's how people become Christians. It's you stepping out of your comfort space, going into the lives of people who disagree with you, and loving them, like hurting for them. That's how people come, that credentials the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is the last person you have shown compassion? Compassion is infectious. It, It attracted so many people to Jesus. It's what compels his mission. Ask God to give you a heart of compassion. Okay, last point. Uh, Jesus devoted himself in this. This passage flows beautifully, by the way. He starts with the kingdom of God, this massive vision for his rule and reign in the lives of people, and then it moves into compassion for the lost, loving those to propel that mission on. And then we see this last point is he is concerned with reaping a harvest. There is a tangible move that should come as a result of these things. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so he looks out on this bewildered, lost, harassed crowd of people, broken in a thousand different ways, And he turns to his disciples and he said, look at the harvest. Look at the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. There is abounding grain. There is abounding fruit. There's more fruit than we even know what to do with. Our problem isn't a lack of fruit. Our problem is a lack of workers. It's a lack of workers. A lack of willing people to embrace the compassion of Christ and then get busy in their life. That's the problem. And Jesus uses this harvest time illustration multiple times throughout the Gospels. And I think the point that he's trying to convey is this. The harvest will never be reaped unless there are reapers to reap it. We will never reap the harvest. We will never see fruit unless we all decide, let's get out and let's go grab the fruit. Let's go get the fruit. There's some low-hanging fruit in your life right now that you just need to get after and go after. There's some harder fruit that you need to start pruning and cultivating and trying to figure out different ways to help it grow. And then there's some fruit that's really hard that you just need to start praying and begging and asking God. But the fruit will never be harvested unless there are reapers. The harvest will never be reaped unless there are reapers to reap it. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they not believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? It is said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring gospel. Evangelion, good news. How beautiful are are the feet of those who get busy, who go, because there's no other way that people come to know him. And one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that God invites us to do this. He invites us to participate in being reapers for the harvest. He invites us to join him in his mission and in his ministry on this earth. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, 
his workmanship. The word is literally the, the poem of God. We are God's masterpiece, his poem created to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do that we may walk in them. Or Ephesians chapter 4, just flip over a couple chapters from there. It talk, talks about the church, the role of the church, the role of the leaders in the church, the pastors and teachers and elders and the, the, the evangelists and the prophets. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to equip people to go and bear fruit and to go and reap the harvest. It's not the pastor's job to do ministry. It's not the pastor's job to do all the work. It's not the church staff's job to reap. It is the obligation of anyone who says, I belong to the kingdom, the priesthood of every believer. If you want to know whether a Christian is growing in their faith or not, look at their life and see if he or she is doing ministry or if they just want to be served. Let me say that again. If you want to know whether a Christian is growing in their faith or not, look at their life and examine whether he or she is doing ministry or not. Do you want to serve others? Are you giving your life to something bigger, something better than yourself, or is the whole world here just to serve you? It's a challenging thought. And so this passage then is an invitation to join God in his work of harvesting. But I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, there is a plentiful harvest, and so let's get busy. Does he? What does he say? He says, so pray then to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field, which tells me it's not my job to get busy and make it happen myself. The first thing that I need to do is depend on the Lord of the harvest to pray, to ask, to beg him to send workers into the field, and he will do it because he cares more about the harvest than I do. So we're going to do that right now. Instead of us saying, let's get busy, we're going to pray right now, asking God to send workers into the harvest field. I feel like we may, we may do this more regularly from now on because I think there are very few times in the New Testament where Jesus says, pray this. This is one of those times. And so let's put up those points on the screen. We want to send workers into the harvest field in our church. There are needs in this body. We want to send workers into the harvest field in our community. And we want to send workers into the harvest field all over the world. And we as the body of Christ must first pray. And so I want to give you one minute in your seat. Pray a prayer for God to send workers into the harvest field. Pray to yourself or pray out loud where you're sitting, and I will close us here in just one minute. Let's do that right now. Let's ask God to send workers into his harvest field. Lord, I feel like you're telling us to stop playing games. It's time to stop playing games. If we believe in this stuff, we should be asking for this stuff. If we have given our lives over to this, we should beg you for this, Lord. Send workers into the harvest field in this body. There are so many ministry, good ministries in this church. 
Lord, that need people to rise up and answer the call. There's so many things in this community, ministries, nonprofits, things in Bentonville, Arkansas, that have yet to be started because workers have not gone into the harvest field. There are people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ in different parts of the world who don't even have the word of God in their own language, something we take for granted so much, Lord, who need workers to be sent. And so we ask as a body, that you, the Lord of the harvest, would send workers into the harvest field. In Jesus' name, amen. And so he says pray at the end of chapter 9, and then at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus goes into his second discourse in the book of Matthew. He has five major teachings in the book of Matthew. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. The second is in Matthew chapter 10, and it's about sending his disciples on mission. And I think Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is pretty smart. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is authoritative in what he teaches. He has the power to back it up. He's authoritative in his works. And he leads us to this moment, and then he says, it's time to get busy. It's time to go. It's time to stop playing games. Go and be my representative on this earth. That's where we're going. That's where Matthew 10 will take us. But I want to give you a tangible example of that right now. I want to give you a tangible example of someone in our body who has answered the call to reap the harvest. Lana Hayward is one of our elders' wives, but she started doing ministry a long time before that, before she was ever an elder's wife. She has actively served in a variety of ministries in this church, including brewing coffee that we all drink on Sunday mornings, care ministry, bringing meals to people in our body, community ministry, helping lead community groups and discovery groups, hometown suites, helping feed people who are food and housing insecure in our city, and serving as a leader in our children's ministry. And I want to share a testimony to you of her journey from being uncomfortable with the good works that God has prepared for her to saying yes and her seeing fruit as a result. And so let's take a look at this video. When Jay and I finally decided that we were going to be at New Heights and that we were going to be all in, we were all in. You know, we get those little cards that you check, the boxes that you're interested in of what you want to do. Jay and I checked every box except for childcare. And what happened the next week? I get a call from Mark. I didn't get a call from anyone else wanting me to help them do anything except from Mark saying he needed me in childcare. I don't have the patience. I don't have the energy. I don't have any of that to be able to do this. There were other things that I knew that I could do in in the church service. Like, I'm good at communion. I can do communion. I'm great at hospitality. I still do hospitality. And making coffee, and I can do all of those things. But I was just very nervous about committing to teaching a bunch of little girls. The very first day that I went in, I was super nervous. It didn't take long for me to start loving being in there. I just felt like the Lord gave me that vision of us raising our future church, which is exactly what we're doing. Our children, they are our future church. I just felt like the Lord gave me a passion for them, a heart for them. 
Um, I, I am not a teacher. My gifting is not teaching, but I feel like once the Lord gave me that vision, I was able to teach those children and love it and love teaching them the Word of God. We are the Craig family, and I'm Brian Craig. This is my wife, Missy, and uh, we actually have four daughters, three older daughters, and this is our youngest daughter, Meredith, and she is in Lana Hayward's class. Trying to get a big family to church can be challenging, and uh, so uh, it's really nice when the kids want to go to church, and so with Meredith especially, she looks forward to Sunday mornings, and if it's ever one of those Sundays that we're thinking about sleeping in or something like that, she's the one who gets us to church because... She wants to go there and go to her class. Well, Miss Anna is always so welcoming and so sweet to me. And her lesson is like, always be a light to others and go to school and be a light to everyone and teach people about the Bible who don't know God. I think Lana, um, she really challenges the girls to go out and share Jesus with others beyond the classroom. When I first moved here, um, I didn't really know anyone. I was kind of like scared. When we first started going to the church, like a couple months after we had moved here. So, and I remember I had a teacher. She was so sweet to me. And that's why I really wanted to go to this church. Just um, sometimes people can make a difference in other kids' lives, telling them like stories from the Bible and going to church. New Heights Bentonville is based on community. And I wanted these girls to be, I wanted these girls to love each other. I wanted them to be close friends. And also, New Heights, we talk about doing things in the community. So I wanted them to experience doing things in the community, like going to the nursing homes and singing to people. This is our church. These are our leaders. And the Lord just wants us to make disciples out of them. If you're like me and children's ministry was the last thing that you marked or you didn't even mark children's ministry, I would love to encourage you just to rethink that. Rethink uh, God's leading about our future generation. I love having teachers that love me and care for me and teach me a lot about the Bible. My favorite part is just the feeling when you wake up, it's time to go to church. <laughs> We have some very photogenic children in our, in our church, obviously. Um, a special thank you to Jesse Lane for putting that video together for us. And I just want to say thank you to Lana for all that you do in our church. And so I want to give you a, just a round of applause. Thank you. She hates me now for doing that. If you feel like that was some kind of shameless plug, it absolutely was. Okay? And... The reason we're, I'm giving you this shameless plug is because this stuff absolutely matters. It matters. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get really practical right here at the end. You should have received a card. There should be a card in your seat. It's exactly like the card that Lana described, the one where she checked everything but the thing that she ended up doing, and that may happen to you too. Everybody pull that card out for me right now if you would. Hold it in your hand. There should be a pen next to you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, in just a second, give you the opportunity to just tangibly respond. If you are not actively giving yourself over to advancing the kingdom of God, to serving in some way, to seeing the needs and, and, and responding in compassion, and then to be a reaper in the harvest, if, you, if you're not doing that, this is your opportunity. 
And, and, and I've been in your seat before. I've sat where you're, where you're sitting right now. You're like, this is just another one of those like guilt trips to get volunteers to do stuff. I, I, I don't care about that. I don't care. This is about your soul, your heart before the God of the universe. Is your life fundamentally oriented around you with you sitting on the throne? Or is it oriented around him sitting on the throne of your heart and you are circling him? What's your life about? And I just want to say that every single ministry in this church, everything that we do from brewing coffee to discipling children, it is with the aim of sharing the good news of the kingdom. We want people to know Christ. We want people to know how good he is. We want to credential the gospel by teaching and proclaiming and offering healing in our community and the lives of people. If you are not participating in that, you are missing it. You are missing an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. And I'll just say this. There is a plentiful harvest in our children's ministry. It is one of our greatest, it's absolutely the greatest need in our church. God has made us a very fertile church, for for better or worse, right? We have a bunch of kids. And I am convinced that our greatest opportunity for evangelism is already here. It's already in this place. And so if you're like Lana, and you've been sitting there, and you think, I'll do anything else, I would challenge you to consider stepping into a role of discipleship, of sharing. There are people who want to equip you and train you. We are praying fervently as a church staff for this ministry in particular, and we're strategizing, and I'm pushing our ministry teams to, to be more strategic about equipping and empowering and releasing leaders to do these kinds of things. But we need to pray, and then we need to respond. So that's just one ministry area. Maybe if there is another ministry area that's a better fit, and Lord knows there's some of you, I don't want you working with our kids, okay? <laughs> I know some of you. Maybe if there's another place that's a better fit, we, we ultimately want to get people into a place where they can use their gifts to build up the body of Christ because in doing that, that's the only thing that will last. We're all going to be like James and Hannah someday and the gravestone will fade and all of our stuff will be gone and anyone who has any memory of us will be gone. And the only thing that will last is what you give to him. And so we're going to do that right now. I want to invite you right now to examine that card. If you're already serving somewhere, could you indicate where you're serving? Or maybe there's another place that you would be interested in serving on that card. And if you're not serving, maybe you are the answer to someone's prayer to send workers into the harvest field. I would challenge you. Fill out that card. I'll tell you what to do with them here in just a second. So take those things out. Grab your pens. Fill them out. I'll tell you what to do in a moment. When you're finished with that card, you can just leave it in your seat. We'll have someone come by and grab it between the services. Uh, Here's here's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with the question we started with. What are you giving your life to? What are we investing ourselves? Are we just playing games? Are we just playing games? Are we playing this big elaborate game called Christianity where we try to look the part and play the part? Or do we actually believe this stuff? And if we do, that will change something fundamental in our lives. We will seek to advance the kingdom. We will feel a gut-level compassion, and we will 
pray for workers and we will be the workers in the harvest fields. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's stand and let's sing.